This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. That's the thing about COVID-19. It doesn't care about how rich you are. It's the great equalizer. And what's terrible about it is what's great about it. What's terrible about it is it's made us all equal in many ways. virus is the great equalizer. My brother Chris uh, is positive for coronavirus. Found out this morning. One thing that I've learned from being in quarantine is that people, uh, this, this is like being in jail. Welcome to Your Broccoli Weekly. I'm Diora and today we'll be thinking about whether coronavirus is really the great equalizer some people keep saying it is. Celebrities and politicians keep using terms like the great leveller or the great equaliser to suggest we're all experiencing the same hardships right now. On some level it's true. Anyone can get the virus and most people are very scared about the future. But does that mean we're all going through the same thing? A week ago I came across 24-year-old Tash on Twitter and was struck by the posts about her current living situation. So I live in a private rented flat in a council block in Tower Hamlets. There's been scaffolding up since the day I moved here because there's a major regeneration project going on in this area to make the blocks look nicer. There's constant construction. It wasn't great living here anyway, but now that none of us can go anywhere else, including to school or to work, which was kind of our only reprieve, it has become quite difficult. While we've all been working from home, we've also having, we're having to go on mute because someone's dog's barking or someone's child is crying or there's a contractor banging outside your front door. The, the new twist in the story um, last week, we all lost running water um, for about 24 hours. So that's no drinking water, no bath water, no ability to flush the toilet. We all have water now. The question of how clean it is and whether it's safe to wash in and to drink in has not yet been answered. Um, and 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 I don't think either of I don't think it's safe to do either of those things. Um, I drank from I drank uh, tap water from my kitchen tap yesterday and got an ulcer on my tongue half an hour later. There was a whole hoo-ha about sunbathing and, and parks and sort of green space. And it, it felt like a lot of people who were saying stay at home, stay at home were the ones who had, you know, access to green spaces in their lovely back garden. That's not really the case for everyone, though, is it? None of the 80 flats that live in my block have a garden. And there are five other blocks on my street um, and I think four or five on the next street over. So that's literally hundreds and hundreds of kids like in, in cells. Tower blocks are cellular living, right? They are, they are just one stacked on top of the other. It serves a function. And, and what we're seeing now, once, once all those children are confined to their homes, um, is that those homes are not good enough for people to grow up in and live proper, well-fulfilled lives. Because, frankly, children need space. That's just a paediatric truth. Like, they need fresh air and space to be in. Um, lockdown means their access to that is restricted. Tash is worried about the consequences a lockdown will have on vulnerable people in her community. 
communities in this area don't have a good relationship with the police historically at all. So seeing them on your blocks, in your parks, when you have all this history with this institution that basically sees you as a threat, whether you've committed a crime or not. Um, yeah, it, 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 is, um, it, it is making life very difficult. Um, and I'll be honest, it feels dystopian. If you walk out on the streets in E1, um, it feels bloody dystopian. It's clear that accommodation plays a big role in people's lockdown experiences. But what about those in the front line? Kishan is a doctor living in Coventry. He told me about his day-to-day at the hospital right now. I'm a junior doctor working across a respiratory and A&E. So I've been across a respiratory ward and, I guess, accident and emergency department. So I'm seeing patients with coronavirus every single day. It's pretty much all we see every day on my ward itself. We had a lot of elderly patients um, who, I mean, they're they're all pretty much elderly. And yeah, the ones that were there are very, very unwell. Um, We were just doing sort of measures that, basic measures really for a viral illness. There's not a lot we can do. We can treat for bacterial infections and things like that. We can keep them hydrated uh, and treat other underlying illnesses. But actually, there's not a lot we can do. Um, unless they're for escalation, which means for like, ventilation and, and things like that. I think in terms of personal protective equipment, it has been a very, very difficult um, topic to sort of discuss and, and really understand what the evidence base behind it is, because there is so much conflicting uh, information about this in the, in the media, but also in terms of evidence and then in terms of the guidance that we follow. At times, especially in, at the very beginning, I felt... Um, this is, this is probably my main anxiety, not really knowing what the right PPE to wear was. There were times when some would, sometimes I was told to wear a certain type of mask, for example, the FFP3 mask. But then on the following day, the guidance would change to say, actually, no, you don't need to wear it. And then a couple of days later, they might say, OK, now we need to wear, you need to wear these, these visors on your face. We need to really understand what the evidence is saying and base all of our sort of guidelines and suggestions on this. I do think more needs to go into uh, like funding uh, PPE and getting it to frontline workers because it's this barrier that's going to prevent the spread of this, this virus. And it's been proven from other countries like Italy and China. I asked Gishan if training prepared him for what he's going through. So I was in a good position myself and felt uh, relatively competent in doing basic things and managing this type of patient. But this virus has presented uh, an extremely unique and different picture that I haven't seen during this time. And it's giving us medical and kind of uh, other challenges, like emotional challenges, or physical demands on our bodies to sort of deal with uh, what's going on around us. Um, so I honestly don't think any training could have prepared us. I think there's sort of three, three layers to this for me personally. I think the first worry is when I see patients who are stable and then they suddenly contract the virus or they display symptoms and then they deteriorate. So my first worry is just seeing patients in mass just fall so unwell. I do have mild asthma, which I I manage quite well with inhalers. It's not severe at all. Perhaps occasionally flares if I'm around a cat or um, hay fever. But I've been very anxious about it, working on a respiratory ward and knowing that my exposure is incredibly high. I mean, I don't know how it's going to sort of impact me. And I guess I just, I just recently tested positive. So I, I'm, I'm living with that fear every single day. So you have coronavirus right now? Yeah, I developed symptoms last Wednesday. 
um, after my night shift. It was just a very slight cough, very, very minimal. And I was very cautious. So I phoned up the occupational health department and they said to self-isolate and they arranged a swab. And the swab came back within sort of 28, sorry, 24 hours and was positive. Um, I guess it was reassuring and scary at the same time. Whilst it's still been going on, I've stayed well away from my family. Uh, at most, they might drop me some food at my door if I'm feeling a bit hungry or some snacks or some chocolate whilst I've been ill. But I, I, I don't come face to face with them at all. But I, I, re- I realise that they're at risk and I am worried. I ask Kishan how he feels about being called a hero. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like a hero. I feel like I'm doing my job. Um, in some ways, I feel the complete opposite of it because we can't save these, a lot of these patients. They're, they're dying so quickly and at times we feel very helpless. Uh, I, I think it's a, a good time for the general public to, to sort of acknowledge the hard work of healthcare workers for sure. But I think hero for me personally is, is a very, very strong term. We're here to do our jobs and we're here to save lives. Nothing could have ever prepared the NHS staff who are currently under immense pressure but many have had no choice but to step up and support the nation. Valerie works in a senior care home in southeast London. I was brought up by my grandma, so I always loved the elderly, and they have so much wisdom and knowledge to pass on to you, so I always love elderly. You know, it's, it's really some who don't have family, and those who have no love, you can give love to. That's why I do this job. Valerie shares some of her fears about working in the sector right now. People are really scared. We have shortage of staff because people are scared. So pressure is on to those who come in, in to work. And most of them who have young children don't want to come into work because they have to go back home to their family. It's just mainly the elder, old, older one of, like myself who's going in. So that, yeah, it put pressure on us who have to go in now and do the work. But we're surviving. I work for a private company. What they were saying is if I take the time off, I would have to, if I want to take that time off, I, I would have to work it back when I go after these lockdown is over. So I can't take time off. I put my, 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 my life at risk and my children because I have to, but I said because of your bill you have to pay, I'm in a catch 22. If I don't work, I could be after this, I'll be on the street. So I, you know, I rather my children stay at home and I go to work. Valerie's worried about the lack of protective equipment which would help her carry out important day-to-day tasks like personal care. Face masks was only issued to us within the last two weeks. Are there days where you might want to wear this protective equipment, but the stuff just isn't there? Sometimes we run out of gloves, mostly gloves. We have to go around the other unit inquiring if they've got gloves because they just give you a pack of 100 gloves to last you for one client for the whole week. So giving personal care with one packet of glove. You know, pack on hold a hundred and that must last it for a week for each client. And they're so thin that if you have to double it, it, it wouldn't last a week. They want to take the pressure off the hospital as well. So a consultant come in, give us an hour and half um, talking and question. And then after this, start accepting Corona COVID-19 clients who the hospital said has recovered. We, we start asking them into the home now. And it's scary because we don't know. You understand? And that's why people get scared, having these people now in the home. Same um, PPE they give to um, COVID-19 unit in hospital. I think we should get it in the homes. If they cough in your face, there's nothing to cover your face. The only thing you have to do is the thing just to cover your, 
your nose and your mouth. The people that you care for, you know, what are they saying? Are they scared? Most of them don't know because it's elderly. I'm with the elderly. Some of dementia, Alzheimer's, they don't even know. Only few might know what's going on and look at the news, but they don't, they don't know what's going on out there. How do you feel at this time? Like, do you, do you feel like it's going to get better or worse? Are you scared? Tell you truthfully, I am scared. But, it's, you know, there's people who need help. What can you do? If we all get scared, who's going to look after those people? Somebody have to do it, darling. So we all can't be, you know, you're scared, but you have to do it. You, you have to help. We've heard people's lived experiences of the way coronavirus has affected their lives. But what about the wider picture? I reached out to Kehinde Andrews, Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University. COVID-19 has just taken all of the existing social inequalities and made them worse. If you look at the way, the impact of who's catching, catching it and who's in hospital, there's already lots of evidence that it's disproportionately affecting minority communities. And if you look at something like the lockdown, for someone in my position who has a, a good job, who gets paid anyway in a garden, it's all right. But, you know, for many people um, who don't live in that comfort, it's much, much more difficult for them to get through it. With the recession or maybe even depression we're going to have after this, uh, you're going to see that again in terms of who's not, who's losing jobs, who's losing work, etc. So it's making inequalities worse. It is not making anything uh, more level. If you think about some of the governments, even some of the ideas the government were floating around earlier, earlier on around herd immunity, around let the let the let the virus spread. I mean, that shows just how out of touch they are because. Who's this, who does this virus more affect if you do that? It's going to be one, the elderly, two, people in poverty, three, people who are, um, you know, more less who can't, who aren't being furloughed, who have to go to work, who are in public services. The British government's response has been appalling, but largely it's been appalling because they don't seem to understand how the health service works or how the society runs. And how does class come into the picture? New figures from the Office of National Statistics show that deprived areas have double the death rates of affluent areas. I spoke to Pfizer Shaheen, who is an economist and founder of Class Think Tank. So Class has just done this survey and we found, you know, around 23%, so almost one in four people are a month away from not being able to pay their rent. So you can imagine in that situation, when you're worried about your job and not getting income, that is a very different situation if you're in a much more comfortable financial situation. And even if you don't get paid for a couple of months, you're fine. Yes, anyone can get the virus. The virus doesn't discriminate, but your exposure to the virus is much higher if you're working in those what have been now termed as essential services. So, you know, delivery drivers, cleaners in hospitals, frontline staff in hospitals generally, um, care workers who are some of the lowest paid people and generally women um, in society. Um, And it's also not the same when we think longer term and coming out of this and different groups will um, be able to bounce back to a different extent. The picture is even more alarming for those in poverty. Kihende explains why. I mean, the economic crisis we're going to experience, or already experiencing, but will experience afterwards, is going to be nothing compared to the knock-on effects on countries which are already really, 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 really poor. And currently, 9 million people die every year in the world because of poverty. Far more than will die from COVID-19. Nine million people per year die of poverty. We just don't have any experience of what that means and what the impact, the biggest impact that actually this, that the disease may have is on increasing the levels of poverty around the world and vastly adding to that number of nine million people who die from poverty. 
Another key element is race. In fact, the Institute for Fiscal Studies has just published a report which found that various black, Asian and minority ethnic groups were experiencing higher per capita deaths and that after accounting for differences in age, sex and geography, the study estimated that the death rate for people of black African heritage was 3.5 times higher than for white Britons. Furthermore, black and ethnic minority backgrounds make up a large percentage of jobs deemed as essential in tackling this virus. One in five people working for the NHS in England, for example, is from an ethnic minority background. However, these numbers are even higher when we look solely at doctors and nurses. NHS is a colonial project. Everybody, I like the NHS, but look at the history of it. It's always depended on black and brown immigrant labour, uh, particularly from the Caribbean and Asia. And so if you look at the nursing community, and then if you look at things like care homes, again, actually because of the links to nursing, again, ethnic minorities much more likely to work in those places. And because of the failings of the government, which have been significant, and particularly for care homes, uh, we, we shouldn't really be surprised that there's a high amount of deaths and a high amount of ethnic minority deaths as well, who tend to be more in the front line in both of those areas. In every area of health, you find racialized health inequalities. And this is something that Public Health England should know fully well. I mean, this is not a secret from cancer to obesity. You find that people of ethnic minorities um, are disproportionately affected. This crisis, COVID-19, has exposed who the working class is. The working class is white working class men, but it's also and disproportionately people of colour, you know, they're doing the jobs, the working class are doing the jobs that are fundamental to society. And, you know, it's quite striking that, you know, three, four weeks before this lockdown was announced, Preeti Patel was on TV proudly talking about low-skilled people. And here we are, all of those quote-unquote low-skilled people that she spoke about in her immigration reforms are the people that are literally keeping society going. What has been the government's role in all of this? So far, the British government has implemented a lockdown by asking people to stay at home, close all schools and advise the elderly and vulnerable to remain indoors. They've also launched a number of schemes offering some financial support to people who need it at this time. These are steps in the right direction. But how have we found ourselves in a place where there's such deep inequality? Pfizer thinks there's been a long time coming. One of the things that we found through our research is... Going into this crisis, the last 10 years in which we've had public spending cuts, um, a huge move towards more precarious forms of contracts, zero-hour contracts, record levels, um, agency workers, what we would call bogus self-employed as well, where they shouldn't really be self-employed, but big companies are doing that to avoid having to ensure workers have rights, etc. Going into this, you've had that 10 years um, and certain people, most notably um, ethnic minorities, have been disproportionately affected by those negative shifts. You go into this then and you have that already burgeoning crisis and then you have COVID on top of that. I just think that people aren't aware of what people have been going through and how difficult this is uh, for particular groups that have been disproportionately affected by austerity and um a shift away from workers' rights in the labour market. And, you know, the thing that really strikes me about it is how disjointed society is because 
we live parallel lives and we have very little understanding of each other. And that's that's really what that shows, that their inability to really connect with the realities for millions of people in this country. This isn't a small minority. Something both Pfizer and Kehinde picked up on when I spoke to them is the politics of language and the kind of message a phrase like the great equaliser sends. A question I've been asking myself throughout this is, who stands to benefit from peddling this line? It's the people who are perpetuating the myth who stand to gain the most from it. I think definitely uh, the government. So I think the government should be under far more scrutiny than it is. Uh, should be far less popular than it is at this point. But there has been this big let's rally round, you know, the war spirit, the we're all in this together. The war metaphor is just generally bad. But if you think about it in terms of healthcare workers, one of the things that that does is it kind of legitimizes the death of healthcare workers, right? And this like soldiers sign up to go to war and then they're casualties. And then we give them medals, we pay the families off and it's okay, right? The NHS workers are not soldiers. They did not sign up to go to war and put their life on the line. They are employees, most of the quite low paid employees, if you look about nurses, who sh- should be protected and have no expectation of dying because of their job. If we want to look at this with rose tinted glasses, we could say that people are doing that and ca- calling this a great equaliser because they're trying to build bonds in communities and across society and, you know, give that sense of like, you know, we're all in this together and, and to try and get that sense of, you know, what we had in the war, whatever, of like, you know, standing together and fighting this together. So that, you know, potentially there's an element of that. But I think there is a more cynical side of that line, which we also saw, of course, with the austerity narrative when we had George Osborne, who, of course, brought in hugely damaging cuts, which is partly why we're in the problem that we are right now, is that, you know, this all in it together in order to fool people into thinking that, yes, they're having a hard time, but everyone's having a hard time Um, and everyone's equally having a hard time. And, you know, it's done to mask the injustices in society and the inequalities that exist and that need to be sorted. And this is the power of politics and the media is to be able to set these narratives and to gaslight the entire nation, right? With austerity, they spoke about the broadest shoulders um, taking the biggest burden. They spoke again about we're all in it together. Oh, in reality, the numbers are very, very clear that it's those on the lowest incomes that had the biggest brunt of that burden. Coronavirus may not be the sole reason why inequality exists, but it certainly highlighted it and in some cases, has been a catalyst in widening the inequality gap. So how can we ensure more equality in these tough new times? How can we create a more equal society after the virus passes? Kehinde believes one way is to make sure the media doesn't stop scrutinising and questioning the government's actions. Because of social distancing, it's, it's, there's less press in the room, so you have, it really is the established media generally who are asking the questions. And unfortunately, they've just been really... Bad, I think generally, I mean, some, I mean, there's been some, some criticism, uh, but it hasn't been what you would expect. I mean, if you look at the government's approach, what they've done, the failings, uh, that I don't think they've been questioned enough, and uh, particularly on issues on the issues of inequality, race really has barely come up. It's come up to some extent, but barely come up. I don't, I don't think the government's been held to account properly at all by the media. Pfizer believes a change needs to come from the government itself by setting a new policy agenda. We've got to address 
and what's happened to workers over the last 10 years. You know, we have to bring the care sector back into the public sector so that we can finally control how much our care workers are being paid and how how they are treated. To address the inequalities exposed by COVID-19, we need to have the kind of dramatic shifts that we had post-war. You know, this is no small thing. There's so much to be put right. One of the things that we could at least start with is to create a new department for workers or labour and we can spotlight the issues of income and what's happening to workers' rights and workers' safety in this country. It's important to take into account that when people make bold statements like this is the great equaliser or leveller and that we're all going through the same thing and we're all in this together, most of them are doing so in good faith. However, when you say things like this, it's so easy to erase voices that need to be heard. There's absolutely no way that a celebrity like Ellen, who compared herself to being in prison because she's stuck in her mansion, is going through the same kind of experience as someone like Tash, or one of her neighbours, effectively trapped within their own homes. We might all be living in the same time, but as we've heard from Kishan and Valerie, we're not living through the same experiences. It doesn't mean that this is some kind of oppression Olympics. It doesn't mean that someone who might have a lot more comforts like financial stability, supportive relationships, good health or a nice house isn't suffering. It means that there are some people in our society who are not only suffering but also don't have the safety nets to keep themselves out of harm's way. So are we really all in this together? I asked Tash how she feels when she hears someone referring to coronavirus as the great equaliser. Nothing can be a great equaliser other than a big, concerted, systematic effort to equalise people's material conditions. Things don't just get equalised, they are made equal. There's plenty of sociological and economic and political evidence to show that actually the world we live in and the, the country we live in is deeply segregated by wealth and income more than anything. But there is this big dividing line between people who live off their wealth or the wealth of their parents or the wealth of their family. And so their incomes are kind of protected in this period. And people who live off their work and their wage and so are kind of bound to their living situations um, by their ability to earn. And within that category of people who have to work to live, there's even a bigger split of people who have wriggle room, um, i.e. savings or family structures or friends with money or a place to go and people who don't, i.e. people who live in council properties and don't have a family structure and have nowhere else to go. What corona has done is basically reveal that some people were already living at the brink of a non-existence and corona has pushed them past that point. The virus might be biologically neutral, but the way it manifests in in the divided world we, we already live in is just as unequal as that world. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter for my latest ramblings. My username is at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. Join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag Your Broccoli Weekly. If you like this episode, our team would really appreciate a rating and a review on your favourite podcast app. And if you loved it, share it with your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and all your favourite apps. This special episode of Your Broccoli Weekly was produced by Cass Denton, 
with help from Jaja Muhammad and me. This is a Broccoli Production.